Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT and Women to Watch Media. I'm thrilled to be back in the studio Uh, this Sunday with another wonderful guest. I'm very honored and excited to be speaking with Asma Yudin, who is a religious liberties attorney. She is founding editor-in-chief of altmuslima.com. She's an executive producer for the docuseries The Secret Life of Muslims, and she is also the author of her latest book, When Islam is Not a Religion. Um, So we're going to have a lot to talk about. She'll be joining me in just a moment. As we go into our breaks, be sure to stay with us to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors from Jefferson Health, Nutrisystem, Pathways Consulting, and Fordist Wealth, bringing you valuable information around your health, finance, technology, and leadership. And of course, for all things Women to Watch, be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch.net, N-E-T, and be sure to check out our lineup of guests and sign up for our newsletter, um, where you'll be seeing a very exciting announcement very shortly that uh, uh, we're going to be sharing with all of our listeners. You can follow us as well on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and be sure to send in questions as you see who's coming on the show each week. Uh, Would love to share some of your own questions on air. So now I am thrilled and honored to welcome to the show Asma Yudin. Asma, thanks so much for calling in. Well, thank you for having me. I understand you're you're in Maryland. This is I am. today, okay. And and DC is your home, is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, close to DC. I, I moved out here to work in constitutional law, so and I've been here ever since. Okay. I'd love to start uh, with your upbringing. And um, one of the things I read about your background that I I really enjoyed was when you talk about your relationship with your father and Mm -hmm. your upbringing in Florida. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and how your dad really inspired um, some of the work that you're doing today. 
Um, yeah, I mean, so my my book, um, When Islam is Not a Religion, while it focuses largely in kind of explaining to the reader uh, the sort of big issues of religious freedom that we're seeing today on the national stage, uh, both in terms of politics and also the law, um, I weave in elements of my personal life, my personal story, and much of that focuses on the story of my father, because when I was thinking about what it really, like all these different themes that I'm exploring in the book in terms of uh, both religiosity and like the importance of religion in the lives of religious believers of all different types, um, but also a, a dedication to uh, to America and a love of American ideals and a desire to give back to American society and the way specifically that intersects with religious identity. It just I couldn't think of a better sort of exemplar of that in my own life than my than my father. Um, who passed away in 2006 after he was uh, diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. And so after he was, between his diagnosis and death, there was only four months. Um, And he died at the age of 56. Um, And, but his entire adult life, uh, the the part that I was a part of, um, you know, it was just, all I saw was somebody who was just incessant in his desire to give back. Um, and who was, who was inspired by that, by virtue of his faith. Um, and so that's the story that I tell in the book as something that I, that I think encapsulates really the importance of protecting religious liberty for people of, of every religion. You know, I think it's so interesting. It seems that you had a very strong interest in religion, even as a young girl. And I wanted to share this quote. I, I kind of chuckled when I when I read it, picturing you in school. You said, um, how do people experience the divine? As a child, I wondered about these questions, lugging around religion scholar Karen Armstrong's book, The History of God, in middle school, as I tried to generate interfaith conversations among my peers. And, yeah, you know, that was, me. That was you, <laughs> not a typical middle school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where do you think that interest came from? I mean, I think first and foremost, just from a place of just wonder about the divine. Um, and again, I would credit, I mean, I would credit my, both my parents and my community and my extended family. But I think definitely a lot of it came from my father because he carried with him just like this certainty in God's existence and the fact that he has a plan uh, for all of us. And that even stuff that you might not understand kind of just fits into this, this plan. Um, and so I think he was, and I don't know that if I, if I process that at that moment, but I think I just always had this, um, I was surrounded by this idea and experience of religion as a source of good. And so as a 12 year old, that was, Primarily how I saw, I mean, that was entirely how I saw religion. It was just something that was uncomplicatedly good. I mean, of course, as as I grew older um, and learned more about the world's complexities, I understood the different ways, unfortunately, that religion is cited um, for, for things that aren't good. Um, but at that point, you know, in my development, that was, I just had so much excitement about the capacity for um, big conversations and for conversations that I thought were really sort of edifying um, to, to everyone's lives, including my fellow middle schoolers. So when did you decide uh, that you were going to go to law school? Um, so, I mean, I think it was, you know, people, people ask me, like, what inspired you to go to law school? And I, and I wish I had a really inspiring answer for that. But I think it was mostly just at a place when I was in college and it was time to decide my next step. And um, 
And it just seemed like I honestly couldn't think of any. I mean, I just didn't know what else to do. Honestly, that's how I ended up in law school. And I thought it was just me. But since then, I've actually read articles where actually in the Atlantic, uh, there was an article that was talking about how so many students ended up in law school because they just did really well in the outside, did really well in college, got into a great law school. And they're like, let's do this. And so, you know, that was largely how I ended up there as opposed to in a PhD program. I mean, I knew I wanted something that was intellectually rigorous. Um, and, um, but also something that had, um, I mean, I think the reason I went to law school and not into a PhD program is because I, I wanted something that was not just heavy on the theory, but also had real world implications. And so at least I knew that much that I, that I wanted that balance. Um, and law school just seemed like a great fit for that. And, and how about your, um, your interest? Did that develop? Because now as, um, a religious liberties attorney, did you know that was the, you know, the area that you would go into because of your interest when you were young? No, I mean, honestly, I don't even think I knew that, that was an area that I could go into. Um, <laughs> and, and it's interesting because I think that ultimately the religious liberty work that I do has that great balance of just being very real world, but also being very much about the sort of intellectual component of like constitutional law and international law. Uh, but my journey there, I mean, I went to the University of Chicago for law school, and um, as is the case with a number of these top law schools, that there's a point, you know, when you're halfway through law school where all these law firms sort of like descend upon the school and, and recruit, start recruiting. Um, and I got, I got swept up in that, and I ended up um, right after graduation going into corporate law, um, but then soon thereafter found a way into what I do now. Right. Listen, we're going to go into our first break. Stay with us for Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie for your health watch at Jefferson Health. We'll be right back. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Now. Women to Watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Last week, we learned about underactive or hypothyroid. This week, let's discuss overactive or hyperthyroid. With too much hormone, now metabolism is increased and everything is revved up. You can feel anxious, have trouble sleeping, hands shake, you sweat a lot and feel the heat, rapid, often irregular heartbeats, you lose weight despite feeling hungry, frequent bowel movements, arms and legs are weak, making it hard to lift a box or climb stairs, women, irregular or no periods that can be seen with infertility, men may have enlarged breasts or erectile dysfunction. Most common cause, Graves' disease. The immune system signals the thyroid to make excess hormone. Not sure why in some people, though it can run in families, usually women between 20 and 40, but can happen in men too. The thyroid enlarges. This is a goiter. 
Some people have classic signs. Dry red eyes can cause double vision. Swelling causes eyes to bulge or lids to open very wide. If inflammation affects nerves, it can cause blindness. Some patients have a small lump or a hot nodule making too much hormone. Other cases come from a virus, sometimes after delivering a baby. Thyroid is overactive at first, then underactive for months. Some medicines treat the thyroid itself. Others treat symptoms like rapid heartbeat or the shakes. The most common treatment is ablation, using radioactive iodine to destroy the thyroid. This small dose does not cause cancer, infertility, or birth defects. Surgery is done less often because it can damage your voice box or the glands that control calcium levels. Sometimes we need surgery to remove a large goiter pressing on your windpipe, making it hard to breathe, or if the thyroid growth contains cancer, or if you have the severe form of Graves' eye disease. Divas, let your thyroid motor keep you moving at the right speed. Don't get a speeding ticket. Get your thyroid blood test once a year. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. I'm speaking this evening with Asma Yudin, who has written a book um, called When Islam is Not a Religion. And um, in in doing my my homework, Asma, I, I watched uh, an interview that you did and you referenced something I thought was interesting. You said there's a heightened sense of anxiety among all faiths coming from a belief that there's some sort of a threat against them. And, you know, certainly the work that you're doing in the topic is is incredibly sensitive these days. And I think people are always a little hesitant to um, go into religion for a lot of reasons. And we'll talk more about that later in the show. I wanted to ask you, do you believe it's a false sense of anxiety that people have around it? So I'm assuming you're referring to just sort of feeling of religion itself is under threat. Yeah, that just, you know, no, and again, no matter, no matter what the faith, I think there is a general feeling amongst all people that somehow their own beliefs and religion um, are are threatened just mm-hmm. because of the, you know, the, the, the culture and the environment we live in. Right. Um, I mean, so I think there's different types of anxieties, and I think um, you know, the degree to which that they might be sort of perceived versus actual is different for different different types of anxieties. And so, for instance, like a new, a big theme on the national stage when it comes to the question of you know, religion and politics and what we see happening here in D.C., close to my home, um, is a lot of language coming out of the Trump administration about religion being under threat. I mean, there's been a lot of coverage, for instance, about um, Secretary Pompeo's speech that he gave recently um, called Being a Christian Leader, in which he talked about um, the need to fight back against secularism and the assault on traditional Christian values. Um, you also saw it, you know, a speech by U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr at Notre Dame a few months ago, where he also had a similar theme about the need to uh, fight against secularization um, and the erosion, um, as he sees it, of traditional values, traditional religious values and mor- mores. Um, and then, of course, you see President Trump also bringing this up when he speaks to his evangelical base, um, most recently at a talk in Miami when he was kind of pushing back against uh, a recent article in Christianity Today that criticized him um, just about how you, the evangelicals and religious believers generally need him to protect the space of religion. And so there's definitely that level of anxiety um, and that type of anxiety. And then, of course, there's 
minority religious believers, um, unfortunately, who are dealing with lots of hate crimes um, and violence against their houses of worship. It's something that I talk about in the book where I talk about sort of this series of arsons that happened at mosques. And a lot of people don't know this, that this actually happened in just a few weeks span after the announcement of the first travel ban. Um, and so you see mosques being burned down. You see, and it's not just mosques. It's also, um, you know, there was a number of black churches um, that were burned down. Um, you also see shootings happening in places of worship. Mm-hmm. You see the targeting of, I mean, recently we saw the stabbing um, of you know, uh, Orthodox Jewish uh, rabbis. And so you see, it's just, it, that sense of anxiety is definitely there. I mean, it's, it, it, and it's rooted in um, just these hor- horrific acts of violence. Um, so I think that there is, you know, but on both levels, I think that even in terms of this broader concern that, that Trump, Pompeo, Bill Barr, and others are tapping into that a lot of conservative Christians are feeling, I definitely think that there's an element of that that is very real, um, you know, because we're, we're so torn right now and so much so many of these more political issues at the intersection of religion and and law um, that I think that a lot of conservative Christians definitely do feel uh, in a very real way that their religion is under assault. You know, for the listeners, Asma, I want them to understand that, you know, again, as an attorney, you are representing all faiths um, while you are a Muslim yourself. And in 2014, you were a part of a very historic um, case, the Hobby Lobby case. I, I wanted to know what you learned perhaps during that working that case that might have surprised you. So, I mean, in, yeah, so my perspective has always been um, that religious liberty is not something, it's not special interest pleading, right? It's not just something that I, that I ask for for my own group or for, or for religious beliefs that I approve of or that I understand or that I hold, but the integrity of the, the human right. And in fact, it's, very existence um, depends on a coherent advocacy for everyone. And so, you know, and for a while in my, my religious liberty career, it was pretty easy to do that because the stuff that I was working on was fairly uncontroversial, right? Like the defense of the building and expansion of houses of worship for people of every religion is largely nonpartisan matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly for religious garb or access to religious diets. Um, but I think so with Hobby Lobby and like that and, and Hobby Lobby was part of this bigger phenomenon that happened after the issuance of the Affordable Care Act and specifically the part that mandated that all employers provide um, contraception, a full range of contraception uh, to their employees and as part of their employee health insurance. And that case involved, as you know, um, the, the a closely held company, Hobby Lobby, that was owned by a fundamentalist Protestant family whose religious beliefs said that they were okay providing uh, pretty much all of the contraception except for a couple of drugs and devices that they considered to be um, abortion-causing, abortifacients, such as the morning after and the week after pill. And I think, you know, what I, what I saw in that example, that, that was just an explosively political case. It continues to be. Um, I credit it as essentially starting our most um, you know, recent iteration of the culture wars, um, and so it's, it's talked about, it's always referenced. If you're in the space, you'll see that it is referenced as <clears throat> sort of the thing that we're fighting against, right? That, that this phenomenon or culture. <clears throat> and so the, that story that was being told in the media and that continues to be told 
is one of a you know people using religion merely as a pretext um, to for actually you know sinister motives, uh, a desire to control women's bodies, um, a, a control of um, women by by men and specifically male clergy, um, you know, and just but I think that that that, pre, that issue of pretext is one that really kind of startled me because just sort of being in the space and knowing the clients and knowing their story. And seeing like the tremendous sincerity with which they um, hold their religious beliefs and and put so much on the line for them, including this billion dollar business, um, that they were willing to essentially just let it. I mean, it was something that they built out of their garage and had grown to this tremendous success. And if they didn't comply with the Affordable Care Act, which they weren't going to because of their religious beliefs, specifically the contraception part of it, that they were going to be you know penalized millions of dollars per day. Um, and essentially that was the end of their business. Um, and the fact that they were willing to do that because of their religious beliefs to me was just incredible. It was just, um, it was really startling. Mm. Um, we're going to go into our second break and, and when we come back, I want to talk about your, um, you know, about the laws and how you make a point when you're out speaking really Mm. to tell people that, you know, things are not as bad as they think because, because we are protected. Stay with us. For Terry and Maggie for our Finance Watch. We'll be right back. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Watch Finance Watch. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. And we're from Fortis Wealth. On January 1st, 2020, the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement, also known as the SECURE Act, took effect. It is considered to be the most significant retirement reform in over a decade. So, Terry, why is this new legislation important? It's meant to encourage individuals to save more for retirement and to motivate businesses to offer retirement plans. It can impact current and new plans. That sounds good, but how will it change my retirement plan? Well, one of the big changes is that if you were born on or after July 1st, 1949, you now have until age 72 to take your required minimum distributions from your plans. Another change is the ability to contribute to an IRA if you were over 70 and a half and have earned income. So what are some other changes? There's a new exception to the penalties for distributions before age 59 and a half. You can now use 10 thousand dollars from your IRA or qualified plan for expenses related to the birth or adoption of a child. You may pay income tax on the withdrawal, but the 10% early withdrawal penalty will not apply. Another change has to do with 529 plans, the popular college savings plans. The SECURE Act expanded use of the tax-free funds to pay for registered apprenticeship programs. Also up to $10,000 can be used to pay off student debt. Is there any bad news? Of course. The most significant one is that the majority of non-spouse IRA beneficiaries will no longer be able to stretch out distributions over their life expectancy. The entire account must be withdrawn in no more than 10 years. This can eliminate years of tax-deferred growth in those accounts and accelerate taxes due on withdrawals. The life expectancy option is still available to certain beneficiaries, such as minor children of the owner, disabled or chronically ill individuals, and beneficiaries who are not more than 10 years younger than the original account owner. 
So what about the changes for business owners? Well, stay tuned and we'll address those in another segment in the near future. Sounds great. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Just before the break, Esma, you were um, talking a little bit about the Hobby Lobby case. And, you know, one of the things I noticed when you make a very strong point when you're out speaking um, and in your writings to, to let people know that, um, again, no matter their faith, there are laws in place here in America, and, and people are probably not needing to um, feel as threatened as they do. And what I wanted to ask you, you know, we can have all the laws we want to implement in society, but do you think we will ever reach a point where um, humans just by nature will practice civility and um, have an understanding of of the differences of others' beliefs? Well, I mean, definitely as an optimist, um, I, I, I pray for that day. I mean, I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the erosion of civic discourse um, in, in our culture right now, um, brought on by a number of different factors, including social media and the, and the fact that it does enable a lot of people to engage in really crass speech without consequences. Um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, so that's, that's my hope that we will get to that point. And I think um, one of the, the points that I was making with, um, with the central theme of my book, which does look at the question of law, um, but also explains that you know, essential to this, this, this idea that religious liberty um, to be protected for everyone has to be afforded to everyone, right? So there's a common saying in the religious liberty advocacy world that religious liberty for some is religious liberty for none. The idea that if you're selective about it, then you essentially uh, take away that right for everyone else and for yourself. Um, so all of this is going to come back to bite you. And so part of me is like, there's, you can start from a place of self-interest by saying that, hey, look, maybe you don't want to engage in these, these problematic statements and advocacy against other people's rights because ultimately it's just going to feed power to the government, which then will one day probably be used against you. So you start from a place of self-interest, but ultimately it's just once you understand that we're all in it together and you understand like the, the, the ultimate philosophy about religious liberty and human rights generally, the fact that it is rooted in human dignity um, and is afforded to us simply by virtue of our being human, I would hope then that we can get past that point from thinking about it from a self-interest perspective to a perspective of like, well, yeah, like what is human dignity and how are we all sort of afforded that and how do our human rights protect that? Um, and then I, I hope that that's the stage at which, you know, we can definitely begin to um, engage in more civil discourse. Right. You know, it, it leads me to, to my next question. I wanted to ask you what your view is, or perhaps have you had conversations with people that um, they don't practice a faith? You know, they say religion in general, no matter the faith, is a form of, of group think and goes against the nature of man um, to be free and explore on his own, what his beliefs might be. Have you talked to people like that and had conversations? And, and what is your view? Well, I mean, so one thing that I do want to make clear about religious liberty is that it's not just the ability to hold whichever religious belief you want to hold, but it's also protects the right to hold no religious belief, right? Right. Um, and so the way that's articulated, for example, in international law, it's the freedom of religion or belief. And so that, that latter part of it, that part of it, or belief, is getting at this idea that 
it's your just your freedom to hold whatever beliefs you want to hold, and that could be that there is no God, and, um, or and that religion is problematic. Um, and so, in terms of the importance of religious liberty for for atheists, um, that is absolutely critical. Um, and I think you know so much of the even our founder, the founding fathers, their you know, the Madisonian conception of religious freedom is that it opens up a place for the free marketplace of ideas, right? And so we can sit there and we can debate and we can come to, through open dialogue and debate, we can come to, we can reach better ideas and we can be better educated. And so uh, to that end, you know, just whether or not religion is good for society, um, what is its value, et cetera, is part and parcel of what religious liberty provides. And so, um, and so, yes, I've had some of these, these conversations, uh, and I, and, you know, we're tying it back to the theme of religious liberty. Those conversations are really just possible because we have that freedom. I mean, there are countries around the world that don't have this freedom, in which people who do, um, propose, uh, secular or atheist ideas in public space, or even on their own, you know, including just on their own blog, um, you find them, you know, dealing with criminal penalties. Um, so, so Yeah. It's it's a it's a fascinating topic, you know, and I I wish that conversations could be more open around it, you know, talking about the big questions of what is truth and and why are we here and and what do you believe and and I always say, you know, it's just such a shame that there's so much fear um, that people have. It doesn't allow them to to be more open and candid and exploring what the truth is, you know. Yeah, although there's some interesting research about um, the impact of um, increasing religious diversity in the United States. Um, and it's there, there were some studies I saw where it was actually just people kind of, kind of um, the researchers at the Public Re- Religion Research Institute that do all this polling on questions of religion and public life. They had seen these numbers that what they noticed geographically is that in places of greater religious diversity, um, there's also... Um, less sort of religious affiliation um, with lower rates of religious affiliation. Um, and they were sort of extrapolating from this that um, they think that the very presence of diversity and being surrounded by people who have different ideas about God and the meaning of life um, actually lessens people's sort of like the, the pressure they feel to sort of conform to a particular norm. Mm. Um, and so they tend to feel more comfortable maybe leaving the religion um, or not practicing it the same way as their as their parents did, for instance. Oh, that's interesting. Whereas, yeah, yeah. Whereas in a more religiously homogeneous space, they feel more of that pressure. Mm. Um, Tell me what, what Asma, what has given you the courage to to speak out on this topic? I, I'm curious how you kind of navigate, you know, being logical about the laws around religious freedom, and at the same time having to negotiate the emotional piece to it. That is always there. Well, I think that the word, you know, logical, when you said that, that's exactly right. I mean, so I think that's how a lot of no, people respond to my to my writing and to my talking, to my various talks, um, by, by sort of pointing out that I am very sort of measured um, and logical in the way that I approach these issues. And I think it, it was just sort of being somebody who has the, the legal background and had experience, especially the type of experiences I had being part of cases like Hobby Lobby where you're in the middle of the fire. Like you see, you see what's happening in the public space. And this is like every national you know, media outlet is, 
is talking about these issues. You're you're seeing it and you're part of it. And you know fundamentally that so much of the coverage and the, so much of the, the emotion, the rage that you see people feeling, like they don't have all the facts, right? Like they, mm-hmm. there's different ways for them to think about this. And so it's really frustrating because you're like, well, maybe if they thought about it the way that I thought about it, they would be able to navigate these issues differently. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to you know, agree with Hobby Lobby's position or agree with the Supreme Court ruling, but just to see a little bit more, have the types of you know ways of thinking and the details you need to just think through it in a way that's less enraging and they can also help us chart a path forward. Right. Um, when we come back, I want to know if, you, if you're ever not logical and measured, <laughs> because you certainly are. Uh, we're going to go into our last break. Stay with us for Mary Manzo of Pathways Consulting. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. What drives most successful people I know is a desire to want to make a change and willingness to put the work in to making it happen. With so many incredible, successful young women in technology, I wanted to see what drove them, so I did some research to see what the common threads are. What I discovered is that at the core, though their stories are different, they all have one to tell and feel compelled to tell it. Whether it's due to a personal event or a passion to build on a concept or idea, something inside them said, you can make a difference. Most of what they did started very small as a concept. Take Laura Burrell Paulus. As example, she's a product and strategy advisor and some years ago was inspired while at a water park when she noticed how many children were overweight and felt that there had to be a way to create an app that could help individuals manage their nutrition, whether they were obese or malnourished. Another great contributor is Rebecca Garcia. During middle school, her sister saw she had a talent for technology and sponsored her to attend a summer program at MIT, where she learned her side passion making websites. Garcia later went on to teach at that same summer program. She's now a developer evangelist co-founder of Coder Dojo New York City, a nonprofit dedicated to improve the lives of young children and teens by teaching them web, game, and app development. These women were driven to make a difference and recognized they had a story to tell. It started personal and blossomed out to their communities or professional lives. So I ask you, who among us doesn't want to make a difference or have some sort of story that inspires us or that we want to tell? It takes courage, a willingness to share your ideas and concepts, a mentor, and knowing that life is going to be uncomfortable for a while as you take on new challenges and risks. If you feel you're ready to take next steps in your technology career and need some guidance, drop me a line at mary at pathwayscg.com. I'd be happy to help. If you're just joining us, I'm having a, a wonderful conversation with Asma uh, Udin, a religious liberties attorney, among other um, things that she's involved in. And um, just before the break, you, you 
kind of described yourself as being logical and measured, and I certainly see that in you. Um, and I wonder if, you know, there's ever moments you're human when you're not. <laughs> and, you know, how do you kind of bring yourself back to, um, you know, that place of being logical because that's the way lawyers have to be? Well, I mean, I definitely don't want to um, in any way sort of underestimate the importance and the role of emotions either. Um, I think that ultimately the passion that I have for this work and the emotions that I have kind of seeing the the real human suffering um, that is a part of this bigger conversation that people on the ground are, are feeling. Um, I mean, again, I started off this, this interview with talking about like my decision to go to law school as a, as a coming from a place of wanting to balance the intellectual, which I guess we can say is the logical, um, with a engagement with reality. Um, and so I think having found that space in this work and being part of a community that does feel often uh, very much um, under assault, um, that's, I mean, that's where the emotion is. I mean, I feel it. Um, it's really just about how I channel it. Um, and I think that in the work that I do, I do it not purely as a sort of a logical endeavor, um, but because it is very much fueled by this incredible passion um, and understanding of the hurt that people are feeling. Yeah. Do, do you see yourself doing this ongoing, you know, forever um, practicing this area of law? You know, it's an interesting question because that's one that I've asked myself as well. And, and recently I was like, well, you know, you know, are there other areas to kind of expand into? And I just, without really kind of planning it, I've sort of found myself now in the space where, I mean, again, having I started off working in, on religious liberty law in 2009. Again, at a time when it was relatively uncontroversial. I think at that time the biggest culture war issues in religious freedom were, you know, whether or not you could have a public holiday, you know, Christmas display or a menorah on like government property. Those are like the big raging issues. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's really kind of gone to a point where just over the course of my my time working on this issue, it's it's really become this explosive national issue. Again, it's it's 81% of white evangelicals voted for President Trump. They are, you know, credited with putting him in power. And he and you'd see that in the way that what the administration is engaging in, not just rhetorically, but the policies that they have put in place, um, really kind of very protective of religious freedom. But And so religious freedom is now this big national issue, but it's it concerns me the way that it's being defined and the way that it's being championed uh, and explained specifically with a reference to one interpretation of one religion. Um, and so because of that, sort of the big national issue, the way that it's actually playing out even on the international stage with the rise of populism and religious nationalism, um, I think, you know, I, I definitely see myself um, in the foreseeable future staying in this space and more so kind of looking at the political elements um, in addition to the legal ones. So would you say, you know, one of your main motivations really is to kind of, you know, dispel the myths around your faith in particular? And, you know, there are there is a lot of fear and misunderstanding. And I, I want, of course, give you an opportunity to talk about what some of those top myths are and, and can you share the truth around them? Yeah, I mean, I think that... You know, what, I actually start off in the introduction of my book trying to sort of respond to some of the core myths, right? Because anytime, you know, my all my experience were traveling both across the nation and internationally speaking about Muslims and, and religion generally and religious freedom, 
it's like the second you begin to advocate for Muslims access to those rights, it's always the same thing. You know, this idea that if you give Muslims freedom, then they're going to do horrible things with it, right? They're, and so it's always about like, well, isn't, you know, doesn't Islam like oppress women? What about uh, Sharia law? What about the treatment of religious minorities and uh, Muslim majority states? And those are all issues I've grappled with quite directly, um, both personally as a Muslim woman, but also as a religious liberty advocate who also works on international religious freedom in Muslim-majority states. Mm -hmm. And Um, women in particular, there is a lot of, uh, you know, the negativity is very often centered around women and mm -hmm. and the belief that they are oppressed. Absolutely. And that was the entire sort of inspiration behind my website, Alt-Muslima, which I started in 2009. Um, A lot of stuff happened in 2009, both my entrance into the religious liberty world and this website and it came from a place of saying, well, you know, so much of this misunderstanding about Islam is based on some issue related to women. Um, what, you know, there's like these images that sort of enliven the non-Muslims like conception of Islam that all are horrific and they all deal with some sort of oppression of women, whether it be the idea of the headscarf or the vase veil as oppressive, as a tool of sil- to silence, subjugate women whether it be at the time, you know, images in Afghanistan of the Taliban, like beating women, um, uh, whether it be the idea of honor killings, um, just a range of different things. And I was like, you know, that's not my experience. And that's not the experience of all the different other Muslim women that I know. And I'm not denying in any way that those things exist. Again, I work on a lot of these issues. Um, But there's always that other story, right? And I'm like, well, I'm just going to create this, this, platform where Muslim men and women come and we sort of battle out our issues on there. And in the course of having that conversation, that debate, people in a very public platform can see that there is this tremendous, um, you know, intellectual discourse. There's, there's all this space where we're negotiating all of our issues in our religion, just like people in every religion do. But most fundamentally, you see very intelligent, smart, strong women coming to the before, including men who are very supportive of gender rights mm. um, and and telling their story um, and, and having the freedom, again, afforded to us by the religious freedom in this country to have really critical debate and discourse about our faith. Yes. And, you know, I think it's so incredible when when some of these um, things that you described are actually true or took place. And of course, media is only going to be representing um, you know, the most horrific things. Those are compelling and, and those are controversial. Um, I agree with you. I think that, you know, that site that you've started where the stories that are, you know, uh, um, can dispel the myths is very, very important. Tell me about, I, you um, know, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I just sort of saw the sort of the impact of that as well. And it continues to be the impact and just the fact that, you know, back in 2009, the Internet was a pretty different place than what it is now. Um, so we were very unique in having this platform and just the immediate reception to that. And the fact that I have seen now that that conversation that was, for the most part, publicly only happening on that website has now become very much more mainstream so that you go to Muslim conventions, right? There'll be thousands of people there. And the topic the panelists are talking about on stage is, are these various issues like, well, how do we, you know, create greater leadership opportunities for women at the mosque, for instance. Right. Um, So I definitely seen that impact. Yeah. Listen, we just have a minute left. Tell me quickly about your uh, affiliation with the Aspen Institute. 
Sure. So I have recently come on um, as a project fellow of the Inclusive America Project at the Aspen Institute. Um, And the project I'm working on deals with essentially peace building in the U.S. culture wars. And it kind of touches on a lot of things that we've talked about today. Um, An acknowledgement of the feelings that a lot of conservative Christians are are feeling. uh, the fact that I don't dismiss it, that I see it as very real, as a, as a vulnerability that, that I think unfortunately gets harnessed a lot of times for negativity, including a lot of the attacks that we see against American Muslims. And the project is really about kind of finding a space to tap into that vulnerability and to talk about religious freedom as a way to negotiate that and to negotiate a sort of framework where um, conservative Christians and Muslims can find um, a way to live together and advocate for each other's rights. Yeah. And all of the others, all of the other faiths as well, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, Asma, I, I thank you so much for taking time to share your story with us here, and I wish you continued success in all of the work you're doing. Great. Thank you so much. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much to my sponsors and our watch team of on-air contributors for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT and Women to Watch Media. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.